This is Misinfo Weekly, a somewhat weekly program about misinformation in our time. Misinfo Weekly is made by the Unit for Data Science and Analytics at Arizona State University Library. Hello and welcome. It's Friday, February 19th. And today we're going to be talking about the freak winter storm in Texas, the failure of the power grid, and the misinformation event that's been swirling around this entire thing. Sean, what's going on in Texas? Well, as of right now, it looks like the power grid is sort of coming back up and power is being restored, but it's been a rough couple of days. Starting around the 13th of February, this freak winter storm caused power generation to fail, all types of power generation to fail in the state. But when this kind of piqued our interest, whenever we started seeing notices that you know some government officials and some prominent folks on the news were saying that due to the failure of a handful of wind turbines, that's what brought down the entire Texas grid. Yeah, that feels like a like a stretch claim, but let's break down the chain of events or as best as we can. Let's try to give the Texas blackout the Paw Patrol treatment in that we try to go from beginning to end and and try to understand how we went from a comment or a rumor to headlines to a full-fledged misinformation event. All this stuff starts February 13th. What's going on on that day? Um, It's cold. There's ice. There's snow. I feel freakishly like... Freakishly cold. Yeah. For Texas, it's freakishly cold. Uh, for Arizona, that's super freakishly cold. We Yeah, we wouldn't... I don't even... Yes. So we have ice, we have snow, and not sort of the usual ice and snow that we see in only certain parts of Texas. And then we see the morning of the 13th, there start to be some problems with some types of power generation... And we kind of get kicked off by, ironically, the Montana Secretary of State. She posts on Facebook saying that they offer Texas and all other states enduring the freezing polar vortex their thoughts and prayers and is thankful for the natural gas, oil, and coal companies because the wind turbines are frozen, solar generation is down to nothing when the sun isn't shining, and this sort of kicks off. Not necessarily the genesis, but this is one of the first comments that we found that kicks off this idea that we have fossil fuels are reliable. We have the re- renewable power generation is failing. And so that sets the sort of stage as the power grid failure and the out- blackouts are basically this renewable production versus fossil fuels. And then the conversation kind of keeps staying in that area for a while. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So. By the time you know, I'm looking through here, and by the time we get to the 15th of February, so by now the 15th of February, people have lost power. There are you know people who are trying to improvise ways to stay warm. Posts on social media, you know, show people covered in blankets, wondering what happened. People are legitimately stunned that this kind of thing is even possible. On the 15th of February, we get a headline for Fox Business filed under renewable energy. Texas electric grid operator says frozen wind turbines are hampering state power output. And so we go from the 13th, where there's that first mention that we could find of this connection, uh, all the way to now, after just two days, it's headline news for Fox Business. And later on goes on, is a is a key bullet point for a, a featured segment of Tucker Carlson's. And also as part of this, we start to see, you know, we we think about the power grid as infrastructure, and it's infrastructure we don't really think about, except for maybe when we're looking out the window or walking down the street and we see a power line. 
We really don't think where our power comes from. We don't think how the grid actually operates. We don't even, probably most people have not heard of ERCOT before, which is the Electric Reliability Council of Texas. They run the power grid, but no one had heard of them before. But now it's sort of common everyday language of, well, what does ERCOT say today? This is similar to like in our conversations about COVID. There are all these medical terms and understanding virus transmission that were not part of everyday language, but due to the pandemic, and now due to this combination of a natural and sort of man-made disaster, then these sort of infrastructure and unknown regulators start to pop up into everyday language. That's not the full story we really get between the 13th and the 18th, right? By the time the 18th rolls around, this is just yesterday, we've got a bunch of fact-checking stories coming out. We've got some think pieces and feature stories on like Washington Post and New York Times that are all trying to provide a, a more nuanced explanation for why power was lost in Texas. And it, you know, we don't have to go through all of it, but it's like a cocktail of frozen gas pipelines, non-weatherized equipment, deregulated grid, and an isolated grid that can't really borrow power from anywhere else, plus a freak winter storm. Add all those things up together, and we've lost power. By the 18th, you know, it's basically there's been the response to that initial rumor that you identified, which is I'm going to set wind power versus fossil fuels. And we're going to say that the deficiencies of renewable energies like wind power, this is the problem. So why do you think that this dichotomy is being set up? I mean, it's not just sort of like a Mr. Burns from the Simpsons moment, uh, right? It's at, I mean, do you have any thoughts on why setting the public conversation around the grid failure, even though we haven't done any analysis yet, might be helpful? I think just to kind of tie up the preliminary timeline that we're sketching at the outset here, it's, it's interesting to look at how in less than a week, we've gone from a crisis event, we have some misinforming alternative or misinforming ideas kind of make it out there. In, in this example, a, a really simplistic understanding of uh, how wind power matters and the, the misinformation about its wind power's fault. Uh, and then we have a correction. And so these basic beats of the story here, um, you know, we've seen before. And one thing that, that we know, one thing that like previous work shores up is we can't count on these corrections being a full remedy for the misinformation. Definitely. Um, and there's a whole series of cascading failures. So we have cascading failures within the grid because these are complex systems that are interacting you know, different power companies, different power generation, things like that. But then the power grid interacts with hospitals, water processing and filtration systems, heating systems, 911 systems, and those interact together as well as like public in systems for public announcements, other things. So it's really complex system where the, the power grid underlies many of these systems. It's kind of like these, this little enmeshed web. So sort of natural disaster that's happening, you know, in a way in Texas is far from over, even though power is being restored, we still then have to deal with the second and third and fourth order effects. Like, you know, all of these water systems that have, are having issues around boiling water, all those other things, like how are you supposed to boil water when you don't have power? So like people are scared, people are uncomfortable. Some people have, have passed away as a result of this. So there's also, as we've talked about before, there's a lot of emotion involved here and so we also want something or someone to blame as a potential solution at this moment in time so we can make sure, you know, when this is over, that it will never happen again. Right. You know, you get back to your question. What is the incentive for anyone to offer 
an overly simplistic explanation. And I feel like at this point, it might be helpful to break down kind of a cast of characters or list of components, if you will, for an infrastructure failure that we typically observe. So for instance, uh, we, we spent some time talking about the Oroville Dam. Can you give us kind of like a 30 second, what's the Oroville Dam, just for those that yeah, yeah, yeah. So Oroville Dam was one of those situations where freak rainfall in Northern California, one of the components of it, the spillway, uh, started to fail structurally. They had to go to some kind of emergency plan for getting rid of all the excess water. Why? Because they didn't want the dam to be completely overloaded and buckle because it had to hold back too much water. In a situation like that one, or when a storm hits, or when the temperature drops to unforeseen levels and the power grid goes out. In each one of those times, it is absolutely part of this genre. When people go back, they see that this had preventable elements to it. There will always be an opportunity to go back and see this could have been fixed. This could have been fixed. This could have been anticipated. Infrastructure failures, we often encounter them because of a lack of preparation. So to me, that's one one piece of this puzzle that we often observe in these kinds of events. So does this interact with misinformation? And now that there's a speculation of what could we have done to prevent this and what are the causes, there's a bit of a sort of fight in the public to then set the public's memory as to what we could have done and what we should do in the future to prevent this. Is that what you're saying? Well, I think that's a great point that that this becomes part of the next phase of things, right? Which is what do we learn from all this? And what do we what do we want to take away from this event? Or as you said, how do we make sure that this doesn't happen to us again? And I think that is not an obvious extension of the first part. Right. So there's there's always some kind of inciting event. There's always some exploration of what could have been done. And then there's some kind of conversation about what there is to learn from this event. There's a recovery effort. And then there's a kind of long-term set of policy decisions or policy conversations that might spring out of it as well. To your question, I think when we try to figure out what we observe as typical across these kinds of misinformation events, across infrastructure failures, one thing that we see is that that misinformation can really interfere with that process of trying to understand what really happened and what we should do about it in the future so that it doesn't happen again. And so to me, that's where misinformation can really be harmful. Yes, it can be harmful if you're interfering with people's ability to know where resources are and where supplies are. I think that in the most immediate response, you can see misinformation happen there. But the misinformation we observed around this event didn't have anything to do with, you know, bot accounts telling people, you know, clandestinely or under the radar that how to respond to something in a way that was directly harmful to them. Instead, we have stuff that's being spoken by prominent officials on cable news, that's where the misinformation is coming from. And this misinformation event that we're talking about, I think specifically interferes with people's collective ability to understand what happened. And so what are the implications of sort of this misremembering? Misinformation often oversimplifies problems, right? If we have a bunch of forest fires and they're the result of a complex intersection of federal policy, climate change, and you know, other kinds of behaviors of the people moving through the forest in the first place. If we get a bunch of forest fires, we don't want to deal with it. It's much easier, right? And when we talked with Steve Corman about this, this is one of the things that came up. It's much easier to just blame Antifa. When we have complex political controversies at all, it's just much easier to polarize the other side or to, to polarize the conversation and, you know, demonize the other side. 
misinformation loves simple explanations for complex scenarios and uh, complex dynamics. So I think to some extent, the complexity of this situation lends itself to misinformation. And let's see, simple explanations also offer higher level of certainty than the sort of more complicated, more accurate explanations of what could lead to the failure or what the potential solutions are. And now, you know, if we kind of frame this as wind turbines and renewables bad, fossil fuels reliable and good, then we have a sort of easy path to walk from, you know, this disaster to solving the problem so it doesn't happen again. We just, you know, throw all the wind turbines into the ocean and crank up the fossil generation facility, power generation facilities, and, you know, boom, we're done, right? I mean, it's not going to be that simple, but that's an oversimplistic, you know, description, I think, right? Well, yeah. And the, what came out of the Oroville Dam incident, people were blaming illegal immigrants from Mexico. Yeah, supposedly. All the money that could have gone to infrastructure improvement was spent by the governor on giving services to people who had immigrated to the United States, quote unquote, illegally. Right. So that is a very straightforward explanation for a really complex set of events that cr that created the Oroville Dam crisis. Right. And that leads to the simple answers lead to the perception that there are simple solutions that are like 100 percent effective. Like we need to do this one thing. We can do this one thing tomorrow. That'll be solved next winter. This is not going to happen. I think the public also wants to know this is not going to happen again next week. This is not going to happen again next year or the year after. Do what you have to do. Boom, we're done. Versus you're talking about sort of restructuring potentially the grid, looking at what roles like all of these players have, understanding the many, many governmental organizations and commercial organizations that are involved in getting power to your house. Like that's, that's just not what we want to talk about right now in the midst of this. We don't want to have hours long conversations. You know, the five minute soundbite provides a lot of comfort, actually. We may look back historically and say, oh, the years 2020 through 2022, that's when we learned that in general, people don't like conversations about risk. <laughs> that, that, that really put a, a point, an exclamation point on decades of data that indicate that people struggle with conversations about risk, right? All throughout the COVID-19 pandemic, actually getting a bead on what people's real risk is, right? Communicating that out, getting everybody on the same page, that's been a really hard thing to do. But risk surrounds us everywhere. And it's also in, in kind of intertwined with our, with our power generation, right? If you want to take some examples of, say, how people perceive risks surrounding nuclear power, all the way to what is the total risk we face based on how vulnerable our grid is. Our grid could be vulnerable to a cyber attack. Our grid could be vulnerable to any number of perturbations that could come from the outside, like weather or could come from the inside, like equipment failure. So we face all these different kinds of risks, but it seems like, you know, having conversations about risk is another one of those areas where, you know, that, as you mentioned, that certainty or that misinforming uh, explanations can often provide sounds a whole lot better than, well, it looks like I need to just have a better comprehensive understanding of the collective risk of all the systems in my power grid, right? That's a lot of work. Blaming it on wind energy that's a little bit more ergonomic. We're really bad at communicating risk still, right? You know, your diet, here leads to your risk for certain health ailments. We're really bad at like communicating that. What does that mean? I mean, that's why we play the lottery and go to casinos still. 
we're really bad at calculating risks and percentages. So here we are. Um, we kind of traced the timeline. We talked about some of the components that we've observed in this story that seem really familiar to us. Let's talk a little bit about the impact of the misinformation that we see circulating around this event. I, I think one thing to take away from this is how framing from, say, a journalistic point of view had a big impact on this wind turbine story. So, you know, we go back to that Texas grid operator who was maybe cited in, you know, at least half a dozen different news stories who reported that, yeah, the frozen turbines are interfering with our ability to generate power. And that one fact, what was it report, reported? Some like a 12,000 megawatt shortfall. In any event, that shortfall, you know, depending on where you tune in for your news, is either a minor part of the energy portfolio and a bit player in a bigger systemic failure. Or if you're getting your news from another place, it is the reason that we're losing power. And it is the reason that people are suffering right now. Well, I think it's interesting to focus a little bit on the language of some of the initial press releases from ERCOT, the, the grid operator, is that they sort of end the press release saying that they're experiencing record-breaking electric demand due to extreme cold temperatures. And then this part I think is important. And higher than normal generation outages due to frozen wind turbines and limited natural gas supplies available to generating units. So by putting the turbine, wind turbines first, that's kind of where we stop reading. We're like, oh, this is caused by this. And no one sort of reads the last part of that sentence to say, well, and it's also all of these other fossil fuel generating power plants too. It's not just the turbines, it's this whole combination. Then you throw in a couple of videos of helicopters de-icing the blades of wind turbines, and you have like all the drama that you need to pin this all on the turbines. Ah, so what you're saying is the even, not just the idea, but the images of the frozen turbines are far more charismatic. I, I think it's more interesting than visual images of frozen natural gas pipelines. I mean, it's just like, that's a pipe. There's some snow versus helicopter pouring hot water in a turbine. That's pretty darn sexy and dramatic. Yeah, that sounds like it could be in a Michael Bay film. Yeah. Bruce Willis is in a helicopter trying to thaw out a wind turbine. Broken natural gas pipe. That's, you're right. N no good at all. Well, let's talk a about a couple more elements of this, of the, of the misinformation event. That we're, that we're thinking through too. What are some other kind of misinforming elements here that bother you? Well, I think one thing that's important to talk about is that existing interests then start to play in this space. So we have you know, power generation companies, we have politicians, we have renewable companies, we also have you know, oil gas generation companies. So they're trying to basically fight to set the public's memory so that they kind of pun intended, the sort of wind blows, the regulatory winds blow in, not in their direction, right? So there's all these different players are trying to basically focus the attention of regulators and the potential anger of the public towards someone else, not towards them, so that they come out looking like a savior versus sort of the evil player that needs to be fixed in the end. You know, the call for reforms were pretty quick after the Oroville Dam incident. You know, Hurricane Katrina was an example. Hurricane Harvey is an example, right? After big events, it is not uncommon to call for change at the policy level. Right. And I think we have these many players that are part of this that are kind of jockeying for the agenda setting to basically set 
you know, what are, you know, members of the Senate and members of Congress going to say about my industry? And can I push more of the blame off back and forth? So they're, they're just basically trying to, you know, ensure that they avoid regulation and avoid the ire of the public. So they're getting involved in this conversation in various ways to kind of steer it in certain areas. Why does misinformation matter so much around infrastructure crises? And one of the reasons is, is the stories that people agree on about how we had the crisis in the first place directly impacts the subsequent policy conversation. And I will bet you a very expensive cup of coffee that during the upcoming hearings, which I believe are next week in uh, the Congress and the Senate, someone will say, but the frozen windmills. I'll bet you a really expensive cup of coffee that something similar to that's going to pop up. It will be fascinating to see how many narrative elements that we've observed during this approximately a week in Congress. We should maybe keep count, maybe a future episode for that. So let's zoom out and think a little bit longer term. Beyond next week's hearings, what are some of the policy implications or policy stakes of some of the misinforming material that's been going around in the last week? I think it's important to think about some of the larger context and some of the shifts in policy that are happening because of a change in administration from the Trump administration to the Biden administration. So we have changes in responses to climate change. The U.S. just joined or rejoined the Paris Climate Accords. And so we have all of these different players trying to sort of jockey for different positions and, you know, those that are already in power. So we think of, you know, fossil fuel dominates our energy production universe in the United States. So the existing players want to stay in that position of power. And then we have renewables and other types of energy that want to topple that regime in response. And so I think misinformation plays in that, this sort of complex stew of what's happening and the changes for the future. So this is one component, but potentially a component that whatever player in Texas comes out looking bad, this has long-term implications for that player. Because we often have a tendency to, to, to put in regulations. I'm not going to say over-regulations, but we, we want a response to an event that's as widespread as what's happening in Texas. Like this is an outlier event. You know, certain communities lose power. That happens. Let's turn the power back on. But, uh, uh, you know, potentially an entire state losing power during a, a winter storm where it's cold. You know, people don't have water. I mean, it's, it's a very dramatic event. It's kind of like a Hurricane Katrina-esque event where you have the power grid interacting. We're going to have a long sort of memory about that within the policy community. And so that then has long-term implications with some of the new policies and a new government. Yeah. So what we remember becomes very, very important. And if anybody has a leg to stand on when making an argument, coming from the position that this is wind power's fault, that is ultimately a very impactful consequence of that misinformation. If, you know, and again, we've talked about and we've talked with folks who mention how it's important to repeat misinforming information over and over and over again so that eventually it sticks as truth. If that's what we get out of this situation, that one of the root causes of of the catastrophe in Texas was wind power, then that is going to supply plenty of material for one side of a political debate about our upcoming configuration of energy in our country. In many ways, this, you know, to take a 
a page from literature, right? This becomes a scarlet letter for whatever sort of energy source or sector then is blamed for this. They have to do all of this extra work to overcome that instead of spending all of their time and energy to, you know, advocate with policymakers just for, you know, the, the next best policy. So they're wasting a lot of energy overcoming the bad look, so to speak, for a little while. And so no one wants to get stuck with that scarlet letter. Yeah. And so, I mean, manufacturing misinformation in this case is incredibly cheap compared to the downstream cost. I mean, the more complex the system, the more seductive the misinformation. And I think we see a great example of this here where uh, a complex system of energy, organizations, climate, you know, other uh, kind of peripheral infrastructure systems. It's just easier to blame wind, easier to blame the windmills. They were already causing blame for causing cancer during the previous administration, right? So, but I also want to say we're not saying that, you know, an oil company is the one that started this misinformation or others. It's just that this type of environment, all of these actors, you know, want to shape what's happening to the best of their advantage. And so if shaping the misinformation environment is, you know, if not coming to the rescue of wind power is advantageous, you're not going to run to the rescue of wind power. Yeah. Yeah. And again, you know, this is not, this does not appear to be on its face a misinformation conspiracy hatched somewhere on a state sponsored, you know, Russian troll farm that it, that hit the social media. And now we're all misinformed. That's not the kind of misinformation event we're talking about here. We're talking about something that was homegrown that, you know, circulated because of its simplicity and because it resonated with a lot of different existing political positions, but it is still incredibly misinforming nonetheless. And it's going to have some long-term consequences on policy conversations surrounding energy. And I think your point about the about resonating is important because this resonated with certain folks. So certain communities were already primed as being sort of anti-Green New Deal, you know, over the last couple of years. So those folks that were already primed, this fits in with their existing set of biases. So they're already like, oh yeah, wind, no dice. This is horrible. They're already primed right. for that. So that just kind of, you know, that that sort of runway was already open for this misinformation to land there and for them to continue to spread it. I think this is a really good example of how if you are if you're out there and if you're listening and if you're thinking about, you know, how do I try to escape misinformation or how do I live with it? How do how does this not happen to me? A really good acid test for any of this stuff is how simple is the explanation that's being offered versus how potentially complex is the system that we're talking about. And if that ratio is you know, a sim it looks something like one very simple explanation for something that is incredibly complex. Ch chances are it is a, a misinforming or a misleading explanation, even though, as you mentioned, you know, sometimes those are the most charismatic explanations available. Right. I also think we can uh, slip in here at the end. I think the role of expertise is important here, right? So the question is like, who do we then believe to tell us, you know, here's the problem. Who's the expert at this moment in time? to say, this is what happened. And at this, if we look at this event, it's sort of unclear who the primary expert, there wasn't someone to stand up and have the trust of the state of Texas and its population, as well as those outside of Texas to be like, this is what's happening. Instead, there were just a lot of disseparate voices. There was no one expert voice to basically calm the public and say what was happening. So that led a bit to a bit of a chaos, which then was ripe for this misinformation.
this point about expertise is great. I'm thinking through how this whole thing would have unfolded if there was someone who was very visible, had a lot of authority, kind of like an energy analog of Dr. Fauci, who people could look to for reliable and trustworthy information. I don't think there is a Dr. Fauci analog for energy systems in our country right now. And it feels like that kind of expertise and authority at the same time might have had a guiding effect on what turned out to be pretty chaotic and pretty misinforming. Do you think their lack of this visible expert is because infrastructure is sort of less sexy? It's basically something that we don't pay attention to unless it breaks, maybe? Yes. I think that's an explanation that I can get on board with when I'm thinking about the kinds of television shows that people make. There are a whole lot more television shows glamorizing the practice of medicine than television shows that glamorize the production and maintenance of infrastructure. Telecom 911 is just not the next reality TV show that we're going to have. I don't know. It sounds great to me. Some CenturyLink or Xfinity Comcast employee fixing broken fiber or copper wire. Also, Bridge Builders LA and Bridge Builders New York. The design, the implementation, all the all the contracts. Is this the next Paw Patrol? Yeah, sure. Let's do that too. Well, I mean, I can see the show for kids, but would adults watch? I mean, like, because kids like trucks and infrastructure and wires and things like that. So, oh, kids. Yeah, you're right. Kids would absolutely watch a show that was nothing but bridges being planned and built. or demolished is more fun. Also, that. So, to go back to this idea of expertise, if we look at the ERCOT's Twitter feed, we can see that on the 11th, February 11th, they actually posted a public warning stating that the winter storm was coming. So winter is coming, prepare the power grid. But it seems like that potentially fell on deaf ears or that might not have been enough notice for everyone to prepare. But I think your point is very interesting that even when we do have a regulating body or an organization of experts, if we're not kind of attuned to listen to them. And I predict that in the coming days, weeks, months, years, we're going to have larger conversations about the role of regulation the role of regulators, what power, no pun intended, but what power, say, ERCOT versus the Public Utilities Commission of Texas had. So if we think of that tweet, was that just sort of a, hey, guys, this is something to think about? Or was ERCOT an organization that could say, do this? If you don't do this, there are consequences. And, you know, so that's the role of regulation in, you know, public utilities and monopolies, things like that. So I think we're going to have those conversations and maybe some of those things are going to change because oftentimes policymakers are motivated to respond to big disasters versus kind of everyday regulation. Yeah, I like that thought. That seems like a good place to end. Thanks for joining us this week. Be thoughtful and be well. For questions or comments, use the email address datascience at asu.edu. And to check out more about what we're doing, Try library.asu.edu slash data.